We uh, switch gears today, and I wanted to say again how incredibly blessed I felt with Pastor Michael opening this series, and uh, I will thank him with a gift from all of you. If you'd like to contribute, I, I would accept your offerings. Um, as an adjunct, it's not a part of this course, but as an adjunct, um, the staff that put this together recommended uh, this book by uh, Fee and Stewart. Again, we have copies of it available. We suggest a $10 donation if you'd like one. But if you're unable to, they are free for, uh, for you if you're able to do that. Um, Zeb's been here so much, I feel like he's a part of us. I'm not going to introduce him, but I feel incredibly blessed also to welcome him this morning for the next four weeks. Six. Seven. Even better. I feel doubly blessed for the next seven weeks. Um, it was interesting that when I was informed that I had been voluntold to teach the Torah, that's that. that I got to give you new batteries. Oh my gosh! Okay. When I what? <laughs> okay. Noah. No. We're not supposed to do that anymore, right? Okay. Never mind. Uh, when I was told, that, informed that I had been voluntold, that's your new word for the day, to teach Torah as part of this enterprise, I sort of fantasized before my meeting with Pastor Michael and Dan Moretta and John Geib that I might be asked, well, Zev, how long do you need to teach the Torah? <laughs> You're all set. I'm all set? Okay. Yes, it's called feedback. I do not discourage it, but... Okay, is this better? Oh, yes, much better. 
Okay, so I imagine that if too loud. Okay, that's better. Okay, I imagine that if asked that question, how long I would need to teach Torah, I was going to respond, well, since we don't have a time machine to take you back to your childhood, the rest of your life will have to do. Um, throughout my teaching career, both here and earlier in the churches and at Temple Israel, I have assumed various roles and I have worn various hats. When I was asked to teach Torah in this class and when Pastor Michael was um, correct enough to call the terms of the Hebrew scriptures Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim, Torah, the prophets, and the writings, or Tanakh, I sort of decided that there was one hat in particular I needed to wear, and it's this one. Okay. So I want you to imagine for a moment that you do not know me as Revzev, which is the moniker I had for many years in the church. And like the commercial of old, I'm not a rabbi, and I don't even play one on TV. So I'm not Ravzev, but how about Rebzev, which is the Yiddish term for mister, okay, which you might have heard from Fiddler on the Roof is Reb Tevye. Because what I decided I was going to do is I was going to present this. I was going to present the Torah as a traditional, devout Jew would present Torah to a Gentile audience in uh, quick sessions like this. And this morning, as I was thinking about my presentation, I uh, basically remembered for some reason, the person who came across my mind and to whom I would like to dedicate this whole series of my teachings here was the first rabbi I had in Israel who introduced me to the splendors and the wonderful world of Torah Shebe'al Peh, the oral Torah, Rav Yona Braverman. And since that was some 45 years ago, I, I, I'm think I'm probably correct in understanding that his soul has gone to Gan Eden, to the Garden of Eden, to await the resurrection of the dead. And so I um, would, you know, feel very comfortable with dedicating this to him. One of the things that I remember about Rav Yona Braverman is that unlike some of my other teachers that I had when I was in Israel, he didn't have any kind of personal agenda for me. Um, he was never other than a rabbi who wanted to teach me as his student, the Torah. Uh, the other thing I remember about him is he liked to sing. And he had one song in particular that he taught us that became sort of our class song during the year that we spent with Rob Braverman at Jerusalem Torah College. And it went something like this. Tzaholivaroni, 
Tzahali varoni, tzahali varoni, Yehoshevetzion. Ki gadol bekirbech kadosh Yisrael. Ki gadol bekirbech kadosh Yisrael. Which means, rejoice and be glad, dweller in Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. And by the way, Yoshevet Sion, dweller in Zion, is feminine in form. So, the other thing whereby I think this might be a little bit relevant, the t-shirt I'm wearing, uh, is that Friday I had dedicated that day, I supposed, to preparing my PowerPoint, whereupon I suffered what could only be described as a self-inflicted meltdown of my laptop. It reminds me of a terrible haiku that I once heard. Your file was so big, it might have been quite useful, but now it is gone. <laughs> well, my files weren't gone, but all of my apps were. So I'm going to have to get Scott Bridges to reset that computer the way it was meant to be. But in the meantime, that's why we have no PowerPoint today. So I thought, as I said to Cindy on the way over here, it might be more appropriate to prevent, present a traditional study like the Torah in low-tech. <laughs> so, what is the Torah? Or what is Torah? Uh, you should have a handout on your table, which is the opening part of the preface to the stone edition of the Chumash, the five-fifths of the Torah, Chamishe Chumshe Torah, published by Art Scroll as their stone edition. And I'm going to explain the term Chamishe Chumshe in a moment. But in the meantime, I thought that this would be, um, and I think that this should be considered, if you will, the overview of everything I will try to do in the course of the next five weeks. Torah is the eternal living monument of God's rendezvous with Israel, the nation's raison d'etre, the soul that enables the nation to survive every trial, to rise to undreamed of spiritual heights and realize the goal and hope of its creator. Whenever the Torah is read, Jews relive the revelation at Sinai, when our ancestors gathered around a lowly mountain and heard God speak to them. As they did then, we seek to come closer to our maker by hearing his teachings and rededicating ourselves to their fulfillment. Uh, that is about as succinct a statement of the meaning of Torah that one could possibly hope for. Notice that um, um, one of the things that is echoed here, which is going to be the title of this first five weeks that we're doing, Moshe Kibel Torah Misinai, Moses received Torah from Sinai. Now, I'm not going to get into all the nuances of that. That is the first phrase of the first Mishnah of the chapters of the fathers in the, in the Mishnah, uh, sometimes called Pirkei Avot, or the chapters of the fathers. 
um, which is probably, in many ways, the core or heart of rabbinic Judaism's ethical teachings. So um, there are many different translations, by the way, of that. So without further ado, let us proceed. Make sure I'm using the right marker, the one that really works. Moses received Torah from Sinai. So we have to start with the most basic question again. What is Torah? And we need to clear the air. So we're going to start with terminology. Okay? Okay. When I refer to the Torah, how do you normally think, what do you usually refer to that as? Excuse me, I can't hear people. You have to speak up. The five books. The five books of Moses. Okay. Other terms that people use? Pentateuch. Excuse me? Pentateuch. A wonderful Greek word. Other terms? Law. Okay. Now, what I really want to do is tell you that what you have just enumerated is all of the worst wrong ways to refer to Torah. They are all wrong and they are misleading. First of all, law has nothing to do with what it's called in Hebrew. Law is a translation of the Greek word nomos. Okay, and unfortunately, when a group of Greek-speaking Jews living in Egypt decided to translate the Torah into Greek for the benefit of the Ptolemaic rulers and the Jewish community there, they called it nomos, law. The Torah does contain a number of commandments, but if you think of the Torah as a law code, you are not only misreading it, you are not reading it at all because we have several trained lawyers and judges here and I'm sure that you would not really consider this a law code. I mean, it's got a lot of commandments, but it's not really a law code. So, forget that term. Pentateuch, what does Pentateuch mean? Five what? I think it means five books. However, there's another problem. Pentateuch, again, comes from what language? From Greek. These are Roman numerals. I got news for you. Moses didn't have Greek font on his tablet either. Okay. And for most people, the term Pentateuch conveys nothing. It really doesn't. 
unless you're a biblical scholar who wants to sound self-important by using Greek words. So forget Pentateuch. Now, what I would like to do is address the whole subject, the five books of Moses. And there are two reasons why that's not a good reading of it. Okay. Uh, what I'd like you to do is take a look at a passage in Exodus. If I can get my Kindle to open here. And what I want you to look at is Exodus 22. And two verses in Exodus 22. No, I'm sorry, Exodus 14. I can't read my own handwriting. Exodus 14, and I want you to look at verses 22 and 29. Just at verses 22 and 29 in Exodus 14, would someone like to read for us? Okay. And then 29? But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Okay. What scene does that conjure up in your minds? Charlton Heston. Okay, yeah, right. Forget Charlton Heston. I love what Frederick Beekner said about uh, when he talked about Moses in his um, in sort of lexicon of people that he did. He said, most people, when they try to get Moses, they try to get some kind of heroic hunk like Charlton Heston to present him. He said, I rather like to think Moses probably looked a bit like Tevye after going 10 rounds with Muhammad Ali. <laughs> so any rate, but okay, so that scene, how many people remember? I assume almost everybody here has seen the Ten Commandments. And what's the scene there? They're walking through the Red Sea, or to put it more correctly, the Reed Sea. Okay, and the waters are a wall on their right and on their left, and what are the Israelites walking on? Dry ground. Okay, now I want you to go to Joshua chapter 3, verses 15 to 17. Joshua chapter 3, verses 15 to 17. Someone read this passage, please. Verses 15 through 17. Now the, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. So when those who 
bore the ark had come to Jordan, had come to the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped in the edge of the water. The waters flowing from above stood still, rising up in a single heap far off at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan, while those flowing toward the sea of the Arabah, the Dead Sea, were wholly cut off. Then the people crossed over opposite Jericho. While all Israel were crossing over on dry ground, the priests who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan until the entire nation finished crossing over the Jordan. Okay. Now, who is crossing over in the midst of the waters on dry ground in Exodus? The Israelites. Who is crossing over on dry ground in the midst of the waters in Joshua? No, not the priests. The Israelites. It was Joseph Campbell in one of his presentations who pointed out that this is like a bracket. And this bracket's a story. And the story actually has the form of a hero tale. There's only one curious thing. Who is the hero of this hero tale? Not really even God. Well, he's maybe the hero, but who's the protagonist? It's not Moses. It is the children of Israel as a whole. The basic foundation, root metaphor, master story of the Jewish people is the story of the exodus from Egypt. How many times I said over and over and over again in the synagogue liturgy, Zecher litziat Mitzrayim, Zecher litziat Mitzrayim, Zecher litziat Mitzrayim, a memorial of the exodus from Egypt. It's the raison d'etre of almost the entire Jewish life. And the biggest piece of liturgy, which oddly enough is not said in the synagogue but in the home, the Passover Seder, is devoted entirely to telling the story of Yitziat Mitzrayim, of the Exodus from Egypt. This is crucial because it is not the story of an individual. It is the story of a people, okay? And that is very important to keep in mind, okay? Because if your master story is, in effect, a hero tale in which the protagonist is the people as a whole, how do you think of yourself? How do you think of salvation? How do you think of what it means to be faithful? You think of yourself as a member of the people. To be Jewish is to be a member of and a participant in Jewish life. And peoplehood is all important. You have no identity apart from that. On the other hand, salvation 
whenever a Jewish person, certainly a traditional Jewish person, talks about redemption, ge'ulah, they are talking about the redemption of the children of Israel, of the nation of Israel. How do you participate in that? By not separating yourself from the community of Israel, by being a part of it. That's your redemption. It is as a member of a community. And in fact, if you had to say, in a few brief words, what is the essence of Judaism? In other words, what are the fundamental pillars on which everything stands? There are three. The unity of God, the people of Israel, and the Torah. The unity of God, the people of Israel, and the Torah. So, I don't really like calling it the five books of Moses for another reason. When I was growing up in the synagogue, every time a, a boy was bar mitzvah, they were given a special gift. It's not this one, but it looks a little bit like it. It was what is known as a chumash. The word chumash means from the word five, chamesh. And the full term is chamisha chumshe Torah, five-fifths of the Torah. Five-fifths of the Torah. Right now, anybody here, an Episcopalian, your heart must be racing. Okay? No, but it's not that kind of fifth. And since, the, and since the editor of the Chumash we were always presented was Rabbi J.H. Hertz, the president of the synagogue used to always joke that it was a Hertz rent a Chumash. <laughs> okay. Chamishe Chumshe Torah. The statement I started with that you have on your handout comes from the beginning of the preface of this version of the Chumash. And it's sometimes simply referred to as a chumash. And that is one correct way of referring to Torah. And the term, if I haven't, there it is. Five-fifths of the Torah. Okay? Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to call Torah five-fifths of the Torah? It's the whole thing, but what does it mean about it's not five books. It's one sefer or scroll in five fifths. 
the Torah is a whole, and it must be studied as a whole. And if you're Jewish, you accept it as a whole. It is the one part of Tanakh, of the Hebrew scriptures, which is read in the synagogue in its entirety. And in an Orthodox synagogue, you will read through the entire Torah in a year. And you don't leave out a single word. Yeah? That's the second big thing. Torah proper, the scroll. Okay, it is one single scroll. And on the 28th of October of this month, Rabbi John Spitzer, retired rabbi of Temple Israel, has promised me that he will actually bring a Torah scroll here to this class. And he has done this for many groups in the community, uh, groups from Malone and other places who have come, and he's opened the Torah scroll and shown them exactly how it is written with the script. Um, there is a commandment, a mitzvah, a commandment, that every devout Jew is supposed to write a Torah scroll once in his life. Most Jews are not equipped to do this. It is the work of a very skilled and trained scribe. And so one of the things that you can do is you can hire someone to write a Torah, a scribe to write a Torah for you. The other thing you can do is if they are in the process of writing a Torah for a synagogue, at the very end, the scribe will leave only the outlines of the letters of the last several words, and members of the congregation under the scribe's direction can come and fill them in. And they get essentially credit for having written the whole thing. <laughs> now you talk about a bargain. <laughs> well, you know, it's also... The Torah is considered such a sacred thing. One of the things that happens at the end of the weekly reading of the Torah portion, one of the honorifics you get is the position of Hagbah, the one who lifts up the Torah scroll. And you lift it up, and at this point, you need to remember something. It can be very heavy on one side and very light on the other. Don't drop it. If you drop it, you have to fast for 40 days. Or find 40 people who will fast with you for one day. I once almost saw a Torah scroll dropped in my synagogue. It was, again, one of those things where it was, I think, the very beginning of the year. So No, the very end of the year because it was the right-hand portion that was very heavy. And the Hagbah started to lift it up and we started singing as we usually do. You know, this is the Torah which uh, the Lord gave to Israel by the mouth of God and the hand of Moses. And as he lifted it up, the right side, the heavy side, began to tilt outward. <coughs> 
Let me tell you, you have never seen an NFL wide receiver do a better catch than that rabbi did jumping in and catching the, that Torah so that it didn't fall on the ground. And in the process, believe you me, we changed keys on that song. It was the neatest little modulation you'll have ever heard in music. Okay. So, the Torah in the, the Sefer Torah or the scroll of the Torah is one Sefer or book or scroll in five-fifths. <coughs> The safest way to refer to the Torah is thus simply to call it the Torah. Don't try to translate it. But, we'll get to what it means in a moment. Scope. What is included in the term Torah? Okay, maybe it's time to flip. Some people will say I flipped long ago. All right. Now, any devout Jew will tell you that if you refer to the Torah, there is the term Torah, if you will, Torah proper. Which refers to the scroll in the synagogue. or to one of these books, the five-fifths, a humash. Okay. That's Torah proper. But the way in which most Jews refer to it is Torah, the written Torah, Torah Shabiktav. The written Torah. That's the written Torah. But that's not the whole Torah. If that's the written Torah, what else is there? The oral Torah. The oral Torah. Okay. Torah Shebaalpeh. Now, one of the problems which Christians have, whenever they think of the Torah, besides all the wrong terminology, is that they see Jesus as having rejected wholesale the whole of rabbinic tradition. And I think that's even a misreading of the New Testament. But the fact of the matter is, no culture ever commits all of its norms, beliefs, and values to writing. No culture ever commits all of its norms, values, and beliefs to writing. Hmm? Well, it's not just that they change. Let me ask you this. How many people here got a driver's license when you were 16? How did you know it was time to get your driver's license? 
What? Did anybody look it up in the state law code and say, oh, I can get, according to this part of the state law code, I can get a driver's license. But does the state law code tell you, you go ahead and do it? No, it just says you can. Who said you, can, you should go ahead and do it? Parents, friends, that's Torah Shabbat That's oral instruction. There's a very famous story that everybody tells about the great sage Hillel who lived a generation before Jesus. <coughs> Excuse me. Hillel was known for his moderation and gentleness and um, his uh, cohort at that time, his interlocutor was Shammai, who was known for his strictness. And so everybody knows the story about the man who came to Shammai and said, I will become a convert if you can teach me the whole Torah while standing on one foot. And Shammai chased him away with the measuring rod that he kept to chase away people he felt didn't measure up. He came to Hillel and made the same request, and Hillel stood on one foot, which I can't do without leaning on this. That which is hateful to thyself do not do to another. That is the Torah. The rest is commentary. Now go study. Now, of course, everybody remembers Hillel's version of the golden rule, but no one remembers the important last two words. Zil gamor. Go study. <coughs> because if you are a devout Jew, the study of Torah is your lifelong occupation. That's your vocation. What you do to earn a living is an avocation. Okay, your real vocation is to study Torah your entire life. Okay, but there's another story of Hillel that is less well known outside of Jewish circles. <coughs> Excuse me. Another potential convert came to Shammai and said, I want to become a convert. I accept the written Torah. I don't accept the oral Torah. Shammai chased him away, of course. He came to Hillel. Hillel accepted him as a student. And he said, well, if you're going to study the written Torah, you need to learn the Aleph Bet, the Hebrew alphabet. So he started teaching him the Aleph Bet. And he taught him Aleph Bet Gimel, Aleph Bet Gimel. The man dutifully learned Aleph Bet Gimel, Aleph Bet Gimel. He came back the second day, and Hillel started teaching him Gimel bet Aleph, Gimel bet Aleph. And the man said, wait a minute. Yesterday you taught me Aleph bet Gimel. Today you're teaching me Gimel bet Aleph. And he'll see you can't even learn the letters out of which the written Torah is made without oral tradition. And then the man accepted the oral Torah. For a Jewish person, The text cries out for interpretation. And it is the oral tradition known as the oral Torah, Torah Shuba Alpeh, which gives 
that correct interpretation of the Torah. Lawrence Kushner, from whom we'll hear more next week, the author of such wonderful books as Honey from the Rock and The Lord Was in This Place and I, I Did Not Know, uh, basically has said the Jewish people are, are known as the people of the book, but they should more properly be known as the people of the interpretation of the book. The people of the interpretation of the book. Next week we're going to devote an entire class to how Jews understand and interpret the Torah. Okay. And the other thing that I want to say about the importance of oral tradition in understanding the Torah, I mean, there are countless examples. Every Jewout Jewish male every day puts on prayer boxes to Philin, mistranslated into Greek as phylacteries, which sort of means am amulets, but Tefillin really means, it comes from the word tefillah, meaning prayer. So they're prayer boxes. How do you know they're supposed to be square? It's nowhere in the Torah, in the written Torah. All it says is bind them as a sign upon your hand and let them be frontlets between your eyes. How do you carry that out? That was revealed to Moses orally at Sinai. Okay, and he passed it on. So the fact of the matter is, you cannot begin to understand how to live out the Torah. Now, by extension, by extension, Torah sometimes refers to the entire Hebrew scriptures of Tanakh. So if, for example, a Jewish person is a student in a yeshiva, a rabbinic academy, Whenever they are studying any Tanakh piece, anything from the Hebrew scriptures, they are considered to be studying Torah. Because the prophets and the writings presuppose Torah as their foundation. But the primacy of the Torah is very much absolute. Okay? It takes precedent over all other scriptures. The Torah is the only book, as I said, the only scroll, the only scripture which is read in the synagogue in its entirety. Okay. Now, how did we get this? How did the Torah come to us? I'd like you to turn to Nehemiah chapter 8. This is part of the Ketuvim, the writings. Nehemiah chapter 8. Now, a portion of this used to be a part of the Episcopal lectionary that was absolutely dreaded by Episcopal lay readers because it happens to form what we jokingly in clergy circles called the Babylonian telephone directory. So do I have a seriously brave soul who wants to read chapter 8, verses 1 through 12? All right. You only live once, right? 
And when the seventh month had come, the children of Israel were in their towns, and all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which which the Lord had given to Israel. Sorry, it says right here. (laughs) Yeah, I know. White out law, put in Torah. (laughs) And Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly. Torah. Both men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Teaching. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden pulpit which they had made for this purpose. And beside him stood... Matitiah, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maasiah. On his right hand, and Pediah, Pediah, Mishael, Malkiah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam. On his left hand. See, that's how you cheat. (laughs) And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbathai, Hodiah, Mahaziah, Kalita, Azariah, Jazabad, Hanan, Paliah, the Levites. How'd I do, Rev? Very well. (laughs) Helped. uh, I got a little coaching there from his first list. Helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. And they read from the book, from the law of God clearly... And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Okay, I just want to pause at this point. Again, instead of book, read scroll. Instead of law, read teaching. Okay, that's very crucial. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to him for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord, and do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites stilled all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing 
because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Okay. All right. First of all, the people were standing and listening to Ezra the scribe read the Torah to them for half a day continuously. It's one of the times that we ever have recorded in Tanakh that the entire Torah was read not at one sitting, but at one standing. Okay? This was not necessarily a cool day. It was the seventh month. It was at the end of the harvest season. But as anybody knows from looking at the recent weather around here, it can get pretty warm. And... This is also a great month when you're in Jerusalem for the Sharav, the hot east desert wind that makes you feel like you're standing at the door of a brick kiln. So this was quite a test. So it would have been more than six of our hours that they stood there and heard the reading of the entire Torah. Notice what is going on. The entire Torah, one scroll, is being presented to them. It's being presented to them as a whole. It's being presented with interpretation. Why would it need interpretation? What language is the Torah written in, please, people? Hebrew. What language did the people speak and understand? Aramaic. It's also a Semitic language, a cognate language. But by this time, Hebrew had ceased to be a spoken language. How many people here have ever attended a Catholic Mass that was done in Latin? Okay. You're Latin at the time. You know, I had one teacher, one of my systematic theology teachers at Suwani said, he cried the time when they stopped teaching Greek and went to Latin in secondary schools because basically he said they stopped studying poets and instead studied all those generals. So any rate, um, you don't really understand what's going on. So the people had to have a translation, what is known as a targum. A targum, a translation. Okay. Now, what's going on? Why were the people so upset and mourning? First of all, anybody know what was the date this occurred? Someone besides Cindy. What was the date that this occurred? The date was 444 BCE. That's sort of the more generally accepted date, though there are alternatives suggested. It is after the destruction of the temple and the Babylonian exile, the return from exile, and the second temple, which compared with that of Solomon, was like a shack, uh, but it was up and running. And the community in Judea was very small. Okay. So when the people heard the Torah, what was their basic reaction? Why were they crying? 
What? They realized how bad they'd been. They realized, oh my God, we broke this commandment, that commandment, the other commandment. So they had to be told, no, that's not how you receive the Torah. Receiving the Torah is a matter of joy, of rejoicing. This is a festival. Eat yourself some nice, well-marbled beef, you know. Have, you know, have wine, well-aged on the lees, okay? Send to the person who doesn't have anything so that they can feast and make merry because this is a joyous time. Now, what were the people doing with respect to the Torah at that time? They were ratifying it. Now, I'm not going to get into all of the stuff about source analysis and the documentary hypothesis and J-E-P-N-D. The important point is what's happening here is the Jewish people as a whole in Jerusalem as one person are standing listening to Ezra the scribe reveal to them the scroll of the Torah in its entirety and they're saying, Amen, Amen. And from this point forward, the Torah becomes the constitution of the state of Israel. The constitution of the Jewish people. This is the ratification of the Torah as scripture. Because this is the point at which we really talk about it as scripture and as authoritative. Okay? Well, that depends again. Uh, what you're talking about is probably as much as 1,000 to 800 years. So there's a lot of time for development and change and additions and whatever, but in any event, the important point is that the Torah as we have it is the result of the codification of the redaction, the editing of all the different Torah traditions by priestly scribes in the Babylonian exile. This was what Ezra brought from Babylon to Jerusalem. And the people received it. Now, we're getting close to the end of our time. I skipped over something very important. I was saying that the basic importance of Torah is to call it Torah. Okay, which means what? Anybody care to guess? It means teaching, instruction. Torah means. And in some ways it's worked out because this is the, probably the most important thing that you have to learn today. Torah means teaching. It's from a root, yara. Yud, hey, resh which means to instruct, but it also has another interesting meaning. 
Yara also has a significance in archery. Anybody care to guess what that meaning is? Any educated guesses? It means to hit the mark. It means to hit a bullseye. It means essentially to shoot with purpose and effect. Okay. Anybody care to remember, because we've talked about this, I'm sure, another term from archery that we know in a different, as a different word? What is missing the mark? Anybody? It's the Hebrew word chet. It literally means missing the mark. How do we usually translate that term or hear that? Try sin. If sin is missing the mark, Torah is hitting it. If sin is missing the mark, Torah is hitting it. And one of the things that you need to do, if you're going to hit the mark and not miss the mark, is you've got to know what the mark is. Can you shoot a straight arrow without a target? Obviously not. How do you know where the target is? That's the purpose of Torah. That's the purpose of Torah. Okay. And I want to finish up with Psalm 25. Because this is one of the most beautiful passages you will find in all of the Tanakh, which will give you a completely different understanding of God in many ways. Psalm 25. Who wants to read Psalm 25? To thee, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in thee I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Yet Yea, let none that wait for thee be put to shame. Let them be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know thy ways, O Lord. Teach me thy paths. Lead me in thy truth and teach me, for thou art the God of my salvation. For thee I wait all the day long. Be mindful of thy mercy, O Lord, and of thy steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to thy steadfast love, remember me for thy goodness' sake, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For thy name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man that fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. He himself shall abide in prosperity, and his children shall possess the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn thou to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. Relieve the troubles of my heart and bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. 
Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my life and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in thee. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for thee. Redeem Israel, O God, and out of all his troubles. Now, in the center of this, what is God's relationship to the sinner? What does God do for the sinner? What? Teach. He instructs the sinner. Okay? This is an image of God which is probably one of the most undeveloped and underdeveloped conceptions of God. God is the teacher. God is the teacher. And for the Jewish people, Torah is God's teaching. Torah is God's teaching. And it instructs them in their entire way of life. Provided you understand Torah broadly enough. Not just as the scroll in the synagogue. Not just as the Hamishe Humshe Torah, the five-fifths of the Torah, but understand it as the whole of God's teaching to the children of Israel, saying, in effect, this is how you should live. Okay, any questions? Comments? Yeah. You'll find out on the 28th. Let me put it this way. If we were to unfurl the entire Torah scroll, it would probably stretch almost all the way around this room. Yeah. Okay. What? Uh, okay. If we have been grafted in, if you Gentiles have been grafted in, what do you do about it? What do you do with the Torah? Well, if you know of a people who have lived with this teaching for millennia, have studied it and sought sincerely to shape their lives by it, to whom would you go for instruction? Go to the Jewish people. You want, to see, you want to learn Torah? You go to them. Okay? That's a good question. That's a really good question. Uh, it brings me to something I'm almost loath to bring up, and it relates to the question of the oral tradition, the oral Torah. Uh, my spouse did a major in anthropology at Middle Tennessee State University from a her main professor was Dr. Marilyn Wells. And Dr. Wells, in her cultural anthropology, the first class Carrie took, basically enumerated two critical principles that are absolutely essential for our approach to any ancient text or any ancient practice. Number one, ritual is communication. Ritual is communication, okay? And the same applies 
to a text which is ritually enshrined as the Torah is. Okay, ritual is communication. The second principle is this. Communication presupposes a cultural context. Communication presupposes a cultural context. Well, what is the cultural context of the study of Torah? It's Judaism. You take a practice like the study of Torah out of its cultural context, if ritual is communication, what happens to the text that you take out of context? It miscommunicates inherently. It miscommunicates inherently. To a devout Jewish person, they would want to say to you Christians, guess what, folks? You keep telling us how to read our scriptures. You've been misinterpreting them for 2,000 years because you completely missed what we have been trying to teach you the whole time. It's the Jewish community that are our mentors when it comes to the meaning of Torah. And you have to understand it as an inherently and essentially Israelite and Jewish document and teaching before you dare to reinterpret it in Christological terms. Okay? That's enough for today. <laughs>